Hello there, and welcome back to The Price of Pain. Today's guest is Dr. Chris McCurdy. This is the second time he's been on the podcast. Uh, those of you that have listened for a while, he ran through an introduction of who he is and in, in his research uh, back in episode eight with the promise that we would have him back on to talk more in depth about Kratom, or as we call it in this episode, Kratom, trying to harken back a little bit more to the origins of the word in Southeast Asia. And we set a record in doing so and in inviting him back. He became the first guest that's come on the show twice. And then in this episode, he set another record. If you'll notice the timestamp on this, this is a longer episode. It's about an hour and 15 minutes. We try to keep them less than an hour just to make it easier for you to listen to. But this was fun. And there was so much good information and his passion for his work uh, was very tangible. And it was easy to, to start talking about uh, some of the recent developments with the World Health Organization, which we start with, um, in between these two episodes, the WHO had a panel of experts and lay people on, even even mentions a Buddhist monk, to get their perspective on Kratom and whether it should be regulated. We talk a little bit about history of Kratom and what it is, and then what we've seen in the United States with uh, recreational and medicinal, medicinal usage of Kratom, and then finish with some questions from you which we've been waiting for for so long. So a big thanks to everybody who submitted questions. Because we ran so long, we weren't able to get to all of them. Um, but I think that that was a nice way to wrap up this episode as long as it was. And because of that, I don't want to take any longer with this introduction. So let's get right to it. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. Kratom has been the common pronunciation in the United States. So why, um, why that came about, I'm not really sure. Uh, because even in Malaysia, it's 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 Katam, so it's it's a different pronunciation. But there's no nowhere is there the cray, yeah, yeah. <laughs> except for here. Well, you know that's that's kind of how Americans do stuff with borrowed words, right? right? We just it's, we it, have to say it our way. And so I always say tomato, tomato, whatever it right, is. We all know right. what we're talking about. Right, so right. Uh, it really doesn't make much difference. Yeah. So I was hoping that we could just narrow in on that a little bit more. And and what was really exciting to me is the last time you came on you were looking forward to the WHO, the World Health Organization, right. uh, meeting to specifically discuss uh, you know, possible regulation and, and whatnot uh, following. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to go with the new one and, and honor the, uh, the root, and we'll call it Kratom. Um, <laughs> but uh, but the, the regulation of Kratom. And, uh, and so I'm curious, I did, since then, um, what's, what's developed? So, yeah, interest, interestingly... Um... So we had to get up at three something in the morning Eastern Standard Time to to get on a, a Zoom call, and it was it was really interesting, uh, and it actually beat flying over to Geneva, uh, although I wouldn't have minded that trip. Uh, but but getting online, uh, there ended up being ten individuals that addressed the WHO Expert Committee on Drug Dependence or ECDD. Um, and those individuals ranged from a Buddhist monk, uh, 
through scientists like myself, uh, some policy individuals, some people in the uh, sort of dietary supplement industry uh, as well. And so there was a there was a good range of, of individuals. I'd say the majority were science background mm -hmm. individuals. Uh, and they gave us each five minutes. So they uh, essentially turned on your ability to share your screen. And then <laughs> if you weren't done at five minutes, they promptly shut you off. Um, but I was able to, uh, I knowing that ahead of time, I, I prepared a statement and, um, and actually got through my statement faster than I thought I would. Mm -hmm. And was able to share some of the latest science, uh, threw up some PowerPoint slides and, and really showed them where directions were going and that there is really some medical potential that we're seeing in, in the sciences bearing out. And it's not just our work, it's it's a lot of groups that are that are working in this area. So um, that experience was really interesting. And then they essentially ended that open forum session um, all of the members of the expert committee on drug dependence were in attendance uh, virtually as well. There was just the, the secretariat's uh, office and a couple of people at a table with a big WHO emblem mm -hmm. behind them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then basically silence. Wow. <laughs> so we didn't hear anything for, for quite some time. Uh, and just last week or the week before last, the, the announcement came. Uh, the official word from from the WHO came that they did not see any need to do a deep dive full investigation into Kratom, that they believe it would it would um, result in continued monitoring, mm -hmm. uh, continued surveillance at their sort of low level of um, surveillance, just to pay attention and see if anything strange happened. The reasoning behind this, uh, was one that it is a, a ethnobotanical or traditional medicine that's being used uh, in parts of the world, and they didn't want to ban that mm -hmm. that ability. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and then the the second thing was the emerging science that's that's coming out. A lot of that coming from from the work that we're doing here at the University of Florida. A lot of that also from work that's being done at the University of Science Malaysia. Uh, work that's being done at Washington University in St. Louis, work that's being done at uh, Columbia University um, and, and other universities around. Uh, many, many people are getting involved in, in trying to understand the science. So that, that indicates that the usage of Kratom is, is worldwide and, and multicultural, right? That's right. And in fact, I, I, was, uh, I was very impressed that the, the Buddhist monk <laughs> that I referred to came on and spoke about how Buddhism endorses the use of cannabis and um, Kratom mm. and said that, you know, within their practice um, and one of their beliefs that if it can heal and benefit people, then it should be something that isn't blocked access to. Wow. Uh, and so it was really fascinating to hear uh, and in a sense have uh, connected on LinkedIn with this, this monk and uh, now there's been some conversations go back and forth there. Just just some uh, mutual appreciation of, you know, thanks for saying what you said. Thanks for doing what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the science has, has really, I think, started to uncover some real medical potential here. And, you know, don't, don't 
throw the baby out with the bathwater at this point. Let's see what let's see what comes up. And so that was that was the purpose of of this meeting is to get expert opinion and, and have everybody plead their case for Kratom and and then the WHO was gonna decide whether they were gonna jump in and, and begin regulating. Is was that the purpose? So the whole purpose was exactly that. And the WHO had essentially well, they, they could do four different outcomes. Okay. One is, let's forget about this completely. We don't need to pay attention to it. They were already monitoring it on a global scale, mm-hmm. um, just sort of that we're aware of this, we're aware that there's some potential health concerns in terms of risk or harm. Uh, and, of course, they want to be protective of, of the global population if there is a legitimacy to that. Um, the, the third thing they could do, which is what they chose to do, um, or sorry, the second thing, yeah, they, they, um, decided to just keep it at that surveillance level. The third Mm -hmm. thing they could have chose to do, uh, was initiate a full investigation. And so from that report's date, they would then meet again the next year and during that year, they would do a deep dive into all the science, all the harm, all the adverse event reporting, just everything that they could gather to then make a decision whether or not that this substance should be put onto the banned list. If they go that route, sorry to, to interrupt there, if they go that route, would they consider any new science? Would any, would any studies be conducted specifically to look at uh, concerns that they had. So they 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 could ask for more science. I don't. I think that uh, that's sort of what they did this time. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think they sort of just said, look, there's not enough evidence to have us do a full investigation on this and consider a ban. Um, so just keep doing what you're doing, science people. <laughs> and, <laughs> keep sciencing. <laughs> and and let us see what what comes out of it. So. I think that's kind of what their decision was. Um, the other, the the final decision they could have made was to absolutely internationally ban it immediately, mm-hmm. uh, which we I didn't think would be an outcome. I honestly didn't think a full deep dive investigation was going to be an outcome either. And the outcome that came out, which seemed shocking to a lot of folks, uh, and um, the American Kratom Association felt it was kind of shocking to them as well because um, rightfully so, they, they believe there's been a lot of forces, uh, external forces really pushing to to get a ban on this. Where all those external forces are, I can't really specifically say, or and I don't want to throw any names out. But, sure. um, but, you know, if, you know, but if I may uh, speculate, I'm curious, because when, when things come along like that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I have, I have two questions about that just outright worldwide ban because that that just doesn't enter my sphere. And, yeah. and, and one of the things that's most interesting to me about the you interacting with the WHO is, is just the WHO in general, uh, not even on the radar of the lay person until the COVID era. Right. And now, you know, there's a, a fair amount of uh, skeptics out there and, and and criticism of the WHO, and, and some deserved. I mean, the WHO has admitted that, but but knowing how that works, if if the WHO says this is th- there's an international ban on this, is it still up to 
uh, you know, governments from, from countries around the world to, to decide whether they're going to adhere to that? Uh, or how does that work? It would be up to those countries to enforce it, okay. right? So okay. I, the WHO doesn't have, uh, as far as I know, doesn't have agents going around the world. Right. Or, you know, we don't see crime scenes with WHO <laughs> on the back of, of, the, of the shirt. So, yeah. um, you know, I think it would be left up to uh, the DEA to make a decision in the United States mm-hmm. if they're if they're definitely going to put it into Schedule One of our Controlled Substances right. Act, which would mean there is no medical purpose, right? Right. right. Well, and so and then the other thing before you go on, and I, I hope I don't cause you to lose track of, of your thoughts, but I wanted to jump in before that we go too far beyond it. It does seem, and I understand you know your sensitivity to to not wanting to call out um, you know groups or individuals or whatnot, and I, I respect that. But it seems to me that oftentimes when there's pressure on regulatory bodies, particularly with, with pharmacological agents of, of any kind, oftentimes that comes from religious organizations or religious bodies. So I think it's very interesting that in this case, at least one religion, um, being Buddhism, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. the monkeys there, um, is in favor or in support of this because of its it, how interwoven it is into culture in, in a large part of the world. Yeah, and, and really, I, I, I didn't have any indication of what this individual was going to say, although we had an agenda of who was speaking. Mm-hmm. And so for the most part, I looked over the names. I knew most of the scientists, of course, and knew that they were more than likely going to speak in the towards the medical benefits Um, but I had no idea what some of these other individuals were gonna were gonna say and and quite frankly the the Buddhist monk was the first one to speak and so uh, it sort of set that Zen tone if you will that mellowed everybody out okay everybody can relax Um, but uh, but yeah it was interesting to see I mean the the I don't think there's any any um, any huge surprise that that would be in tune with Buddhist thought process of, you know, if it's there for benefit, mm-hmm. then it should be there for everyone yeah. to help human suffering or relieve human suffering. Certainly makes sense, yeah. at least to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know when people say that, uh, oftentimes when people say that to me, well, it makes perfect sense. Half the time it does, and half the time it doesn't. But from my perspective, that's I, I, I can appreciate that outlook. Um, also, uh, I, I would have to ask uh, when, and let's maybe start with your statement. But but this is it seems to be an advisory board that you were a part of, right. or an advisory council that you were a part of that that gave a perspective on this. The WHO, when you prepared uh, your statement. Did you did you pose both positive and negative effects oh, uh, yes. of Pratam yes. and and, yes. and and were there? I would assume that that was probably at least amongst the scientific community. That's that was par for the course. That was the norm. Is that yeah. fair to and, say? And I think I think you know, uh, as scientists, we need to be um, really discussing what the results of our studies are, mm-hmm. whether whether they turn out to be in favor or against. The data is the data. We right. have to explain right. that data, interpret that data properly, because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're here to find out, is this a safe and efficacious you know, therapy or possibility for whatever the ailment um, that we would be pursuing, or is there harm? And if there is harm, 
is it occurring in certain situations? Right. So are there certain individuals that may be more prone mm -hmm. to having problems because of their genetic makeup or metabolism? Uh, or big question, what about pregnancy? Right. You know, can this be utilized during pregnancy? Um, so various scenarios that we need to research and understand and really be able to put that, that information out there. Yes, there has been harm associated, particularly in the United States, with the use of, of Kratom. Mm -hmm. Is it because people are trying to legitimately utilize it for right. a medical purpose, or is it because people are out there like trying to binge drink and right. do other crazy things? And that's, yeah. where, that's where the bad rap comes from, because what happens... Those are the ones that end up in the emergency rooms or poison control centers. Right. That's where the press, that's where the, the medical community sure. starts to learn this, about it. This is why we can't have nice things. Right? This is right. right. Um, and I do want to zero in on that in a little bit once, once we get past the, the WHO meeting because sure. that's still fascinating. And, and you brought up an important point that, that I hear pretty regularly and, and not so much within the scientific community, um, but in a counterbalance to that. Um, out in the public and in discussing with friends and family, uh, various topics, we seem to be hardwired to want a kratom is good, kratom is fill in the blank, whatever. You know, we're very binary, right? Mm -hmm. It's either mm -hmm. it's a good or it's bad. Right. We should do it. We shouldn't. And in reality, uh, you know, there are very few things that really work that way. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I, I think it's really interesting that you know that there were some non-scientific individuals in this meeting to to at least you know voice a different perspective and i do want to talk about them in just a moment but also um i really like this is the second time now uh, your symphony analogy that you used mm. last time yeah fantastic and and i've gotten a lot of feedback on Thank that you. from our listeners uh also about they, they love that and, and i'm i'm on board with it too but <laughs> the other thing you said is is you know it's our role to um or our obligation even to interpretate the data, or interpretate, <laughs> edit that out, please. Interpret the data, um, and 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 not to not make inferences, but limited inferences, you know, to to what that may mean. But there's there seems to be a, a very important um, handoff of the baton. These this is the evidence. These are the data. This is the evidence, and then a line is drawn where making of policy is somebody else's responsibility and it's their right. their obligation to take the input from you. So, having said all that, that was that was my monologue for a moment. <laughs> of that group, did anybody, um, and I, I don't mean by name specifically, but maybe by topic, did anybody lean more toward the negative in, in their perspective or their uh, their data or even the non-scientists as well? No, uh, it was it was overwhelmingly supportive of um, you know continued research, mm -hmm. uh, pushing more boundaries of the science, understanding more um, because the all the scientists that spoke presented data that clearly show some potential benefits, mm -hmm. and albeit in animals. Uh, and and that's the controlled science we have now. Um, clinical trials are going to be coming out soon, and publications will be coming from from some of those. Uh, I would say in the early part of of 2022. So it's going to be really interesting and exciting to start seeing at least you know what what's the safety like, what's what's the uh, understanding that we can now have in a controlled situation in humans. 
But yeah, it's it's the majority of everyone that spoke from whatever sector they were was pushing the the potential benefits and recognizing that there's been issues and recognizing that there's been harm. Um, but for the most part, it's been uh, considering the global usage, this, the amount of harm has been relatively small. Now, if you're an individual or a family of an individual that was harmed or had a fatality involved, that changes your perspective sure, because sure. that then that, then it becomes a very different story. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I you know pulling back and looking at it in a in a larger say thirty thousand foot uh, level, we d- we definitely have um, a, a fairly decent safety profile when it is used properly. Right. Uh, and that's what we see from humans. So we'll see what happens as we are getting into more controlled clinical trials and we get to understand exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think. Well, and it's, it's hard. Think, it's hard to to comment on because. OK, so let me take a step back. Mm-hmm. If, if I could just fill in the blanks a little bit on what you just said, what's important is if the substance is used properly and that's a somewhat subjective term but if it's used properly then what's the risk right i mean you can take pretty much anything and get too much of it you know sure everything in moderation including moderation but (laughs) um but it's without without clinical trials it's it's hard to figure out what is the proper dosage and what is so if you don't have those data right then you can't determine well these adverse events or, or these maladies or, or tragedies even come about because they're using this beyond what's suggested because you don't have a suggested right. amount, right? And we don't. And at the, po- at the moment in time, the only thing that we can base dosing and safety on is by asking people what they use. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, you know, most people are not always going to be upfront, forthright, and honest with you. Uh, in fact, when I was in pharmacy school and we were doing patient intake and we would ask them how much they smoke, if they smoke, and how much they drank, if they drank, mm-hmm. they always told us double it. Yeah, yeah. Just assume That's... it's going to be more <laughs> than what they tell you. Yeah. Um, and, and those all have significant impact on, um, you know, anesthesia levels. If mm-hmm. you're going into a surgery, sure. if, if you're not accurate about how much you drink, then they're going to have to push that anesthetic up higher than what you need and that we could get into all those studies but you know that well yeah well and um, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit but the reason why i know that is i you know I, I don't do clinical work i'm not a clinician right but uh man i sure did watch house for a long time and, <laughs> and everybody lies and when yeah. when somebody came in and and they had you know there's an emergency and they coded or something and they had to be treated um yeah, any any time there's any kind of intervention, uh, anesthesia or pharmacologic intervention, um, and and it seems like they're not honest, then really bad things happen bad after things that because there are interactions that that are unaccounted for. Yeah, and I and I think you know it's been good because uh, I've been able to develop some relationships with Kratom uh, users, um, and really understand because I really want to honestly know. What, how much do you use? How often do you use it? What do you, what do you feel like? Uh, do you do you titrate your dose like we do with a cup of coffee in the morning? You right, know, some, right. I think we talked about it last time. Sometimes 
you know, one cup of coffee is enough for me in the morning. Sometimes I may not even need a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. but sometimes I need three or four. <laughs> and it's like, you know, how, how do you do that with a natural product that could have varying levels of compounds mm-hmm. within it from batch to batch? Um, and this is another big discussion that we're talking about now. Even if we were to come out and say, here are some standards, here are some suggestions we have around this product and its use, um, the variability in the natural product becomes huge. Mm-hmm. So do we, set, do we set alkaloid limits or ranges where it's going to be you know, safe and is it going to be efficacious if it's between x and y mm-hmm. but it'll be toxic if it goes to z right so so do we do we understand kratom and the compounds that are that are contained therein enough to understand the variability because an analog that comes up to me is is cannabis yeah. right you know there are different strains of cannabis some more potent than others but but we're getting a better understanding of the compounds and the terpenes and all that so you can say okay well we're going to look and this is your realm, not mine. So when we say we're going to look, you know. Um, but, yeah, so we can say there's X amount of this. And as long as it's within this range, then this is pretty normal and we know how it will affect you. Are we at that level with Kratom? I don't think so. Um, we, we, so we, and I say we in the, in the larger sense of Kratom researchers, we know that um, the focus or the spotlight has been on mitragynin or mitragynine. Uh, th- again, another compound we could discuss the pronunciation. I have a question about that actually later. Yeah. Um, and so we, I say, uh, in in most of the individuals I know, in the in the science side, are saying uh, mitragynin because the plant is mitragyna speciosa. Mm-hmm. So mitragyna, mitragynin, seems like a logical. Uh, naming so um, what we're doing and and most individuals are focusing on that there was a study that came out uh, by by uh, Dr. Shellard many 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 years ago decades ago that indicated the relative abundance of alkaloids within the alkaloidal fraction that was extracted out of leaf material Mm -hmm. they did that based on three trees and so oh. that set the standard for the way that Kratom's alkaloids should be spread. Mm-hmm. We've been very fortunate because we work with um, the in- some scientists in the Institute for Food and Agricultural Sciences here uh, at UF, and we've been able to start looking at some plants uh, as they are growing and looking at their alkaloid compositions not only that, we've actually had uh, harvests of trees in Malaysia mm-hmm. where we GPS identified those trees. We selected leaves from those trees and we specifically analyzed content in those trees from the same local farm. Mm-hmm. And we found huge variation in alkaloid concentration. Just within those trees Just, in that space. Right. So that's not even really accounting for trees that grow in different regions, altitudes, no, climates, etc. Exactly. Okay. And so what happens is is that that grower will harvest, and I'm speaking in Malaysia, um, in where I saw this happen. That mm-hmm. that grower will harvest uh, their their materials freshly. They will provide that same day that fresh harvested material to a um, 
for lack of a better word, retailer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But that individual will get the leaves and then brew the leaves as a tea and prepare them. And so it's it's a combination of all these trees that are made into what they call juice, but mm-hmm. it's a tea, mm-hmm. essentially. So so there's this whole discussion of strains uh, where you have a red vein, green vein, white vein, different varietals, uh, kratom from, uh, and see there, I go kratom, kratom. <laughs> um, from, when, you, when you say veins, you mean in the leaves? In the leaf, okay. yeah. And so there's all these supposed strain differences. Um and there's location differences. And, uh, you know, it, most of it to us is marketing. We've, we have seen uh, white and green vein, which are essentially the same. Mm-hmm. We've seen them on trees uh, coexisting with red vein leaves. And so... On the same tree. On the same tree. Including different morphology of leaf shape on the same tree. So there's a toothed leaf... And there's a, a sort of smooth leaf. Those are another two types that are talked about. Um, and we've seen those on the same trees as well. Hmm. And so you can see trees with more tooth leaves or less tooth leaves, but you can also see them um, coexisting in pretty pretty similar amounts. It's, it's fascinating. And, and I guess what I'm saying is we don't understand it. And I would equate it very much to cannabis. Mm -hmm. And we know that there's cannabis sativa strains that produce little to no THC or Mm -hmm. produce tremendous amounts of THC, um, at least compared to what used to exist 30, 40 years ago. Right, right. Um, And so we're seeing that same pattern in the the trees uh, where we have some trees that produce very high amounts of Mitragynin and other trees that produce almost none, mm. and so our our interest right now is really understanding and taking those products, which all the products in the in the Western Hemisphere, or Western world, are purchasing and packaging based on mitragynin content being the major mm-hmm. compound in there. Right. We've done a lot of studies, and a lot of other groups have done studies on that purified alkaloid. To understand what it what it does and what its what its pharmacological properties are, mm-hmm. again taking that symphony analogy and we're really hammering on that loudest supposed loudest instrument in right. the in the band already. Right. Um, but there's still all the other things in there, and we we haven't been able to catch up because it's harder to isolate those and pull those out. Yeah. But now we have other trees that have less, and so now we can start looking at these trees that people are saying are beneficial and they still get the same effect and they're shocked to find out that they don't have mitragynin in the major compound. Right, in it. right. So That's our, fascinating. Yeah, and our grant, just to kind of wrap this <laughs> part of it up, one of our grants is to specifically pull out each of those alkaloids that we see achieving plasma concentrations after the whole product is administered Mm -hmm. and then recombine those after they're purified and start to look at the the sort of purified cocktail Mm -hmm. and then start removing one alkaloid at a time uh, and starting to see what the behaviors are, what the contributions are. Um, And when you say plasma concentrations, you mean in the blood? Yeah, in the blood. And so not in humans, uh, but we're doing this in in uh, mice and rats, mm-hmm. and then we, we can use utilize 
those same species to look at the behaviors associated with those same combinations. And then from there, hopefully we'll be able to start understanding that exact composition. What, what are the limits? Where do we need to be um, compared to some traditional leaf products yeah. that are there? And by no means are we trying to create uh, you know, some artificial uh, Kratom formulation. What we're trying to do is really understand the science and say, okay, we're setting this. This is where the limits need to be so you can get the efficacy yeah. that that you want to see. Well, and that's a testament to to not only science, but I'd, I'd pat the WHO on the back as well, because looking at cannabis as uh, an analog, that's not what happened with, with cannabis. You know, it was, um, there was, a, a, at least in my understanding, a pretty gross, not only misunderstanding, but then intentional misconception or conceptualization of what cannabis is and what it does and how it's used. And, and in a way, it was almost weaponized. Mm. Um, and I, there are some people listening along that, that would say, well, not in a way. It most certainly was yeah. weaponized. Yeah. Um, and now we're finally circling back to a better understanding of, of not only the interactions of the compounds within the plant itself, um, but, uh, but doing what you're talking about with Kratom and, and, and paying a little bit more attention to people who have used it with a very specific purpose that's not recreational. Um, so it sounds like the WHO by saying, no, you know what, we'll keep watching, keep, keep sciencing, do your thing, and, uh, and learn more. That seems to me, at least, again, the right way to go about it. Um, yeah. I think making decisions from a position of ignorance is, is usually not a good plan. Hasn't been a wise choice in the past. Yeah. So I like speaking of the past. That's a good segue. <laughs> I, I I wanted to let you finish, um, and I'm sitting on the edge of my chair for a lot of this, but it does occur to me that there are people who are listening that have no idea what Kratom is, and by the time they hear this part of the podcast, I will have already, you know, finished this uh, this interview and and recorded a nice intro to to kind of give people an idea of what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to hear from you, the expert. Let's let's do a little bit of a prequel, an origin story. And if you can, we'll talk a little bit about Kratom, the plant, and what parts of the plant are used. And, and maybe work that up to, before we get to some of these questions, work that up to the present day. Let's talk about what it is, how it's used, the cultures and how it's used in, it, in, in other parts of the world. And then when it began to, I don't want to say infiltrate because that gives a, a negative connotation, but when did we start seeing more usage in the United States and how is it used here? So let's go all the way back to the beginning and really catch people up on what Kratom is. Yeah, so let me start by saying that uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the ammunition that was used uh, to try and go after initial bans or, or impacts on, on Kratom use was the fact that it, it was outlawed in Thailand and Malaysia, which is where it's from originally. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you look on a map and you find Thailand and you follow it down to where the border uh, meets Malaysia, and it's peninsular Malaysia at that mm-hmm. point, that border region is so supposedly ground zero of where this tree originated from. And that's, that's a belief based on a lot of genetic work that's been done in the in the plant world, uh, on the on that side of things that I'm not as much of a, <laughs> I wouldn't even say a novice in. Right. right. Um, however, in that region, it's a very rural region, which you would um, 
imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of laborers, uh, farmers in that area that work from sunup till sundown. Uh, it's not a, a wealthy portion of, of either Thailand or Malaysia. Um, and these laborers, mostly males, uh, would chew the leaves. So they would pick the leaves from the tree, chew those leaves, um, very much uh, like we heard about cocaine use, mm-hmm. the, the coca plant use early on. Uh, and it would give a stimulant effect, and it would give them the ability to work harder, longer hours in that hot, humid, uh, tropical, near the equator zone right. and and extend their time. And so there's old manuscripts on the effects of the kratom leaf chewers. And, and so, so when, when it, and again, I understand that, that some of this is important to your work now. And yeah. so you, you're not a historian per se. So, you know, if, no. if you don't know these things, uh, no, no, but I'm no. curious. So with how long ago you had alluded to this in in the last episode you were on but how long ago uh or what are some of the earliest traces of of these people's using so this? i don't know the earliest traces of use but it's been centuries mm-hmm. at least i mean i don't know if we can go to millennials but right. it's at least been utilized for centuries tr- in this traditional sort of setting environment mm-hmm. um they would also instead of chewing the leaves they would also pluck the leaves and brew teas, as we earlier discussed. And and if they go to consuming a bit more tea, they could get to a more sedative, relaxed effect. So they would chew, maybe chew leaves or take a little bit of juice in the morning. Then they would do that again in the afternoon to, to get through the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. And then in the evening, they might consume a little bit heavier amount to kind of calm down from the day. Um, you know, this was this was the way that it was used. And the outlaw ban in, in Thailand happened in the 1940s when it became illegal and they destru- they ordered destruction of all all these trees. Oh, wow. That's pretty um, extreme. It was very extreme. And the, the reason, at, the, at least that I've been able to find by researching and understanding it, was because it was cutting into the opium tax revenue. Mm. Um, Earlier on, when I said that there are detractors of any of these things, yes. that's the other side. Is the there's, other you know, side. there's a seem, seemingly historically a religious component. Then the other side is the monetary component. Right. And is this is this going to interfere? Can we regulate it and make money off it? Can you know? Yeah. Is it cutting into profits from something that we already use? Yeah. So, okay. so I mean, interestingly enough, that's what that's what happened. So, first of all, ordering destruction of all the trees is sort of like ordering eradication of kudzu from the southern United States. Right, right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not, not going to happen. happen. <laughs> <laughs> so the second, the second thing is, is that ironically, just about a year ago now, uh, the Thai government reversed their decision and legalized uh, kratom production and marijuana production. So and it's usage. been illegal since the 1940s. That's right. Until very recently. Until very recently. Wow. And the Thai government was convinced, based on the science, based on the global usage, and the feeling that they have the superior original product in the world, Mm. let's turn this into an economical uh, windfall for our people that can benefit from this. And so now there's companies starting out of Thailand looking at exportation. Um, In fact, someone told me that they – 
they walked uh, by a vending machine in Thailand that had kratom tea in it. So, wow. you know, there's there's this going on. But that, that historical usage had always been within these sort of laborers. And as I said, it was male. Mm-hmm. Female usage of this was very taboo. Uh, it was considered not something for uh, women to use at all. Uh, in fact, even to this day, if you interview um, females about they know it mm-hmm. they know what it is but very few if any will admit to using it what um, what is what what drives that what's why is it unacceptable for women i you know i don't know what the origins of that were other than um it's still a very um for lack of a better word 1930s 1940s mm-hmm. type style of what we were used to in the United States where the 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 male works and brings home the 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 money and the food and the wife runs the shop right mm-hmm. uh, I, and a lot of that traditional culture is still that way there um, and it's and it's just viewed as a, a a problem if the female is using this sort of um, material so I don't know what the exact. So I'll are. tell you right now, there are plenty of people that are listening along right now that bristle at that idea. Oh, and, and I bristle. <laughs> that double standard, I, I, yeah. I, 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 I yeah. do too. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a, this is a real issue. Uh, more interestingly, I mean, we're starting to learn there are definite differences in uh, exposure in pharmacokinetics exposure between males and females. So. Uh, many years ago, the National Institutes of Health required that we start to do studies very balanced because all the studies used to be done in males. Right, right. And now, thankfully, we have equality in the research and the rigor of that research to really look at species differences and sex differences. Mm-hmm. And so we're seeing some sex differences. Um, funny enough, though, it's like in mice, the males get more, the females get less exposure. In rats, it's vice versa. Oh, interesting. And so we're not going to know until we get to actual control and when, human When you say exposure, do you mean the, the bioavailability? The bioavailability. That, so okay. so we look at um, when when we give uh, a drug or a natural product to, to an individual or an animal in this case, um, we're, we're going to see how that individual animal – uh, or group of animals is um, experiencing that that um, drug. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so not only do we look at the pharmacology, which is what the drug does to that system, we look at what that system does to the drug, and that's called pharmacokinetics. Mm-hmm. And that allows us to understand what exposure of those chemicals are in, in the plasma, which is generally where we look, but we also do tissue distribution. We look at the... Uh, obviously, the target for these alkaloids would be in the brain. We want to know, are they getting into the brain? And if they're getting into the brain, how much is there? So we look for we look for a lot of those things. So, yeah, when I speak about exposure, well, then we can quantify that by, by really looking at concentrations of compounds in the blood over time. Yeah. Before we get back to the, uh, I guess, the pathway to, to Kratom <laughs> in the U.S., I thought of this before just because so much of, of my research and my research interests have a behavioral component. When you're, when you're conducting these rodent studies and, and you're analyzing blood, are you also looking at things like uh, heart rate, respiration rate, balance, uh, 
you know, th those types of measures that that uh, you can you look at behavioral yeah. impacts. So uh, we we definitely always are looking at gross behavioral mm -hmm. changes. So if the animals are are hunkered down in the corner of the cage, that's not a good sign. They should be up right. running around and acting normal, so to speak, uh, for what that animal species should be displaying. Mm -hmm. So we, we do a gross behavioral uh, all the time, but we will get into a lot of specifics. So we'll look at coordination. We'll look at um, blood pressure, temperature, uh, weight of the animal over time, especially if we're giving multiple doses. Is this affecting their eating? Mm -hmm. um, so we, we always try and take a lot of those things into consideration. And if we notice something abnormal, then we'll try and design studies specifically to target, okay, we're seeing weight loss over a week period, mm -hmm. and these animals are growing and supposed to be putting on weight. What's going on? Yeah. And then you can then you can look also, you know, circling back to to dosage. Does this happen at so many units per deciliter or whatever? However, Correct. it's measured in, in rodents and whatnot. Exactly. At what point do you start start to see the onset exactly. of those effects? Exactly. And so so let's 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 drift back to let's get that it. traditional <laughs> use, yeah. right? So that traditional use was was going on for for quite some time, and and, and I think it becomes very um, very circular uh, in a little while. So that traditional use started to get picked up on in the United States, I think around the time the opioid crisis really started to take hold in, in many places. Mm -hmm. And that is because one of the other traditional uses, I talked about how it improved the ability to, to work out in those conditions. Um, however, a lot of those guys uh, were using opium. And I'm not talking about prescription opiates. I'm talking about the real deal yeah. opium uh, uh, product from the opium poppy, that, that milky exudate. Mm -hmm. And so they would utilize that. If they ran out of opium, they utilize Kratom so they wouldn't go into withdrawals. Oh. And this was something that was caught on and thought to be really interesting May I may I ask really quickly because mm -hmm. if if I if I'm understanding you correctly, at certain dosages, uh, kratom functions as a stimulant. You so say they're able right. to get through the day, but at the same time, you can, whether it's by making a tea or whatnot, at, at different dosages, it's more of a sedative and it it relaxes people. You said in the evenings, so how is it? To, do I have that part right? Yeah, that's okay, right. Okay. Um, I'm just thinking, man, if coffee could do that, like if I could just put in a different brew and <laughs> yeah. have a cup of coffee to settle down at night. Yeah, well, the, um, the ones that are infused with marijuana now, I think can. That would, pro <laughs> that would probably do it, so, yeah. I'll keep looking at or, Publix for those. Or you uh, get the Irish coffee, right? Yeah, so, right, well, that's uh, that I can make, yeah, that adds So there's, there's those but, aspects. But, yeah, um, so when when you're talking about uh, mitigating withdrawal symptoms from opium and uh, smoking opium in, in this case, or so um, I'm not sure exactly how these individuals were ingesting the opium, but, but, but anyway, mitigating the withdrawal symptoms, if, if they're coming off right. of opium, are they using small doses of Kratom to offset that as, as a, as a stimulant or larger doses to, so, to mimic some of the effects of, so, of you know, opium? I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly how this was, discovered learned or the practice began okay. but it was definitely documented in some of the very first documentations uh from from westerners that came in to find out about this uh, medication and what its uses were um and this was one of the documented uses mm -hmm. so then 
there was also um, individuals that wanted to get off of opium and stop using opium because of the cost or because it was harmful or because of other concerns. And they found out that they could just switch over and use Kratom and not go into any withdrawal. And it's, of course, abundant. Almost every home you go to in this area of the world has a Kratom tree growing in its yard. And mm. so it's it's a very, very um, indigenous uh, part of society there. And and that, that got us interested. I mean, first, first thing that... Um, when I came across the plant for the first time, I was asked by the National Institute on Drug Abuse to look into um, a presentation for analgesic plants. Okay. And so I went through all the literature, found this, found Mitragynous species that really hadn't been touched on much. Uh, and so we started trying to see if we could find it. And sure enough, there was websites back in 2004, 2005 that were selling the botanical in the U.S. Hmm. At that point in time, though, it was really uh, obscure. Not many people knew about it. And even today, not a lot of people that I run into know about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it was for sure not known. The DEA had nothing on their radar. Of course, the FDA, nothing. Uh, and it was not even not even really being paid attention to. We, we brought it in. We were hearing individuals were doing the same thing in the United States with leaf material that was imported uh, so, so there's two, there's, there's one huge difference, right? Uh, everything that I talked about in traditional use was with fresh leaf, freshly harvested leaf mm-hmm. off the tree or a freshly harvested leaf that was made into tea. Now we're talking about leaf that's making the transportation, uh, literally halfway around the world, yeah. probably on container ships because they don't want to spend a lot of money. So it's being exposed to elements, heat. Um, sunlight, whatever it is. Uh, and then that product arrives in the U.S., and then people are starting to make teas from those leaf materials. And in the beginning, that's really what was going on. I think people were l- really looking for a legitimate alternative uh, you know, way to treat their pain, alternative way to get off of opiates, mm-hmm. uh, uh, mood elevation. And that's the majority of, if you interview individuals today that's still the majority of what the use is in the u.s and is it um in the u.s the the, the cultural origins of being a male only thing is that reflected here do you see pretty yeah, no it's it's pretty much you know not so you, not an issue here. so you can get more anecdotal evidence I- at this point at least from from females who use this as well that's okay right, I, I was right. just curious that's right that. no no that's that's right um and and we uh we again as the whole society of researchers because I'm not uh, epidemiologist sure, or one that sure, goes out sure. and asks questionnaires in the in the community but um, we try to keep those balanced mm-hmm. in terms of male and female respondents mm-hmm. and what we what we infer from that and then we can also look at that separately but in the US this is where we're at um, the plant material started coming in it started to get a cult following uh, a lot of you know sort of under under the radar following people saying, yeah, this works, and mm-hmm. people then offering, like, oh, you have this problem, try this, try that. All of a sudden, then we start seeing it to appear in gas stations, um, a lot of times next to the stimulants mm-hmm. that were there, like you would see stackers, and mm-hmm. then you would see something like, what the heck is this? And the 
the guys behind the counter at the gas stations are like, hey, yeah. y- y- try this one. Yeah. <laughs> Five-hour energy, ginger yeah. root, croton. <laughs> and, and, and sadly, I think that's where also some of the problems started with the, the harm because many of the products that, that were out there, and there's, some are still out there, had very suggestive names as to what effects you would get from that. Yeah. Right. And so I won't throw anybody under the bus again, but I'm just saying, you know, marketing has a lot to do with mm-hmm. who's going to end up purchasing those products. And a lot of the state, um, the states that have made things illegal or the states that have restricted sales have now restricted it so that, you know, anyone under 18 shouldn't be mm-hmm. get, bu- buying these things or whatnot. Um, uh, th- then we start to see more elegant products. Uh, products coming into the marketplace so five hour energy mm-hmm. now we have kratom shots that have a mixture of kratom um, you know blue lotus other different types of botanicals within it um, and again they can't make any claims but people and are, are and are those are those it. like some of the other things where there there's no FDA control over no. this at this point? So there there is some FDA regulation and control. However, there's not enough agents to enforce any of it, mm-hmm. and so it becomes very very much a wild wild west, which is what I always say. So you you end up getting product in the marketplace. You have some people that are legitimately out there, really wanting to help people, really wanting to reduce suffering. Um, and provide a product that that would accomplish that, mm-hmm. and then just like in a, in any free commerce, you have people that want to make a buck on the next yeah. the next big thing. We see it all over the place in CBD right now. I mean, right. there's well, that's and I was gonna I was gonna point that out. So we have some stages here that that we can look at uh, in different paradigms that that can inform some of the pitfalls in this process and. And the first that I was going to ask, as far as you know, FDA and whatnot, is is just the uh, the exercise supplement industry. Yeah, right? you could you could buy something that that claims to have X, Y, and Z in it, but it's a proprietary blend, so you don't know how much. Um, you might think that you're taking that, and instead you're you know taking uh, you know three day old coffee drown- grounds that have been steeped in in hot dog water or something. Yeah. You, you don't know. You don't know. And and then a a little bit of of the, if you take that and, and move it into CBD, for example, which which you were about mm-hmm. to comment on, and we've seen this a little bit in, in preparations for for our research as well. You have the the juxtaposition of, of federal regulation against what states are doing, and and then controlled. And when I say controlled, I don't I don't mean uh, by law, but but um, quality controlled mm-hmm. versus what you might get from your friend down the street. And so you don't know how much of a compound is in a you know a pill or a, a, a gummy or whatever, uh, whatever the active ingredient is. There's there's not enough control and, and, and regulation to to let you know what exactly you're taking. Right. And so combine those two things together, the the not knowing, and then you have <laughs> a, a fair segment of the population who kind of just doesn't care. And they say, oh, well, I'll try it. And so the, the headache that I'm seeing from, from your perspective, at least looking from the outside mm-hmm. in, is you're trying to do these, these well-constructed studies and balance that with some anecdotal evidence from people who use this medicinally or recreationally. 
that evidence is, you know, I don't want to say take it with a grain of salt, but at the same time, you don't know exactly what they're taking because they might not know what they're taking, or right. at least in quantities. Right, right. right. So and, and that's, that's how they create a huge headache. That's a big part of it. The other thing is we, you know, estimates are anywhere from 2 to 15 million users uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and I would tend to guess that it's closer to that higher number than it is to the lower number. Um, and then you you do have this population that doesn't seem to care and just wants to try the next new thing and let's push the boundaries of it. Um, and unfortunately, that small segment of the user population is the one that ends up in the emergency room. Right, right. Because they've misused the substance. And like we said, you can misuse anything. You can drink too much water. Yep. You can die from drinking too much water. I mean, yep. it's hard to imagine, but it, it happens. I, you know what? I'm going to interject right now <laughs> just, just for people who are not locals to, to Gainesville won't understand this. But I used to deliver pizza you know, back in the 90s uh, while I was an undergrad. And, and I was challenged to drink a gallon of water uh, as fast as I, I think it was 10 minutes. Drink a gallon of water in 10 minutes, which seems relatively easy. And, so, and I was, uh, I think I was maybe 150, 160 pounds at the time. So there wasn't much of me. Um, and I almost did it and I don't, this is a I'm, disclaimer. Don't do this. Don't try this at home kids. Um, but also shout out to five star. Those are, those are the good days. <laughs> so, uh, anyhow, um, five star pizza for, for the non-locals. So anyway, I, I did this, I attempted this, uh, I failed, uh, and there was, uh, there was vomiting. Yeah. Um, but only after I attempted this, they said, oh, well, could have been worse. This other guy that, that we bet to do this, uh, we found him three blocks down the road wandering in a state of confusion in the parking lot. Wow. He had driven to that parking lot. So, yeah, anyway, any, yeah. anything in the wrong quantities yeah. can, can I mean, be toxic. Go back, yeah. go back to Winston Churchill, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything in moderation, That's including right. moderation. Including moderation. So, I, I, you know, I, I think these are really important things that we, we need to understand. And, the, the other thing that we work really hard on and try to try to do and maybe don't do so well is educate the medical community mm-hmm. because the medical community, and I'm, I'm speaking of nurses and physicians um, that are right there on the front lines and are going to see these people that are stupid and make the wrong choice mm-hmm. and end up overdoing it. Um, but those are the what make it into the medical literature. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and those are the case studies that everybody, including the FDA, can pull back on and say, look, here's the harm that's happening. And CDC can get involved and mm-hmm. say, this is harm. We need mm-hmm. to do something about it. And that's, that's the biggest headache that we have. Right. And so the immediate reaction from a, a physician that first learns about Kratom by reading a journal of clinical toxicology or something like that is, oh, this is bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Boom, throw it away. And immediately they have now an implicit bias that says, right, right. if I see a patient on this stuff, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're, they're up to no good. Yeah. And that's really not the case. And in fact, we've, we've worked with um, uh, the, the local hospitals here. We've talked with uh, physicians at Shands Hospital, the local hospital here in Gainesville, uh, at UF and really try to change the intake questionnaires mm-hmm. that are done because they don't ask if people take alternative um, natural products or dietary supplements or herbal supplements or anything like that. 
Um, but it could be a key to understanding why uh, they're not responding well to certain medications or why they're having certain effects while they're in the hospital because they're not getting that that dietary supplement or herbal that they've been using. And so, you know, really trying to understand the the patient as a whole, not just what prescription medications or over-the-counter medications. We need to really understand what people are taking. Yeah. Yeah, in then, gen- just in general, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, not going to tell you if they're taking kratom because mm-hmm. it's got this sort of stigma. Yeah, well, so I, before before we run out of time, I do want to address some of these questions uh, that Cat was able to collect. Yeah. Um, by reaching out into the community, and uh, in, in no specific order. Um, so we danced around this earlier, and I almost asked then, but <laughs> Oliver could be LV or IV. Uh, from Reddit asked, can Kratom cause long-term brain damage like other opiates? So, uh, first of all, we don't know. Um, we have not done any long-term studies. Uh, anecdotally, um, there's not really any evidence to suggest this either. However, um, you know, we won't know until we do controlled controlled trials. Mm-hmm. We have not done long-term exposures even in animals yet. Um, we are we are very much interested in moving into those directions and looking what happens. I will say that um, related to that question, uh, babies that are born to mothers that are using opiates generally will go through what's called neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, NALS, or just... Um, uh, Opioid withdrawal syndrome. Um, that they, those babies, depending on the exposure, depending on how much the mother had, and depending on the outcome of the baby's observational and treatment during that during that period, um, those babies generally tend to have more learning difficulties and more behavioral problems. Um, we don't know if that's the case with babies that will be born to mothers with Kratom, and we're actually doing studies along those lines right now with rats so that we can see if there is an impact and then try and follow those pups that are born um, to see if they can behave like um, normal Like pups. you would expect them to. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that, you know, that, that doesn't address the, the, the adult brain, but it certainly will help us understand if there is any impact on brain formation and, and learning and memory. Yeah, so. a quick follow-up to that uh, of my own. What have you observed in with regard to clearance rate or half-life in, in rodent models of Kratom? If you um, say you give them a, again, normal dose um, or, or a, a, let's say a, a non-toxic dose that you would still see some behavioral effect from, uh, how long does that last typically for them? Yeah, it totally depends on the dose because the dose will result in the exposure and then the exposure results in how long that's going to last. So um, we generally see, and I'll bring this back anecdotally too to humans, humans will utilize it two to three times a day, sometimes more, but generally two to three times a day. Um, When we dose animals, we usually do a single dose uh, and that that plasma half-life or that exposure and clearance can really sort of look at 
four to eight hours okay. after a dose. Uh, and so that, that comes in line with with what could be three times a day. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, various – obviously, there's difference between human and the way a rat metabolizes. Sure, sure. But um, I, I, I think that that's pretty – that's pretty standard. And then, of course, the big question: Have you have you observed any kind of addictive uh, characteristics? In in animals, we have not done long term studies to look at uh, addictive or abusive behavior. What I can tell you is that in acute, more acute studies, so we've done seven day, um, where we've given uh, mice uh, kratom tea. For what we freeze dry it, so it's spaceman kratom tea. Uh, <laughs> but we give uh, we give it uh, usually twice a day to these mice for seven days, uh, and then we look at um, precipitating withdrawal. So okay. we we actually inject them with Narcan or naloxone, and we look at their behaviors. And we can do this with morphine. This is well studied in the literature. You can. Uh, habituate a mouse or a rat to morphine, then you can push them into a rapid detox withdrawal with with uh, naloxone. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we do that as a control group, we have several behaviors that we can look at uh, to see that withdrawal is definitely present. With Kratom, we have not seen many withdrawal symptoms at all, or if we do, they're incredibly... Uh, attenuated as what you would see with morphine, so much less. Okay. That's not to say that there isn't issues and there's isn't, you know, certain individuals that may metabolize things differently that could lead them to having uh, more uh, euphoric experience or a more, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't want to say addictive, but they could use they could have a kratom use disorder more <laughs> likely than. <laughs> Uh, someone that could just utilize it on a daily basis at the right. same dose. We have heard that there is, over time, uh, individual Kratom users, and I'm talking about humans now, will have to increase their dose. So there is some tolerance that seems to be there. Mm-hmm. But again, way less than what you see with a traditional opioid, a prescription opioid. That we have seen in animals as well. So we see a less tolerant development um, and, and again, comparing back to opiates. But it does exist. It mm-hmm. does happen. Uh, and I'm sure that if we studied this long enough and we pushed doses out long enough and high enough as that tolerance develops, we could probably precipitate more severe withdrawal in the animals. But in a subjective opioid withdrawal scale, the SALS mm-hmm. scale that's used clinically, uh, Kratom has been reported in the literature to have a 9 value. So nine in terms of (laughs) not a nine in terms of a one out of 10. Uh This is a one out of 30 range. Okay, And so 30 is the most severe. Mm -hmm. uh, And then 30 down to uh, I believe it's 20 or 21. That defines severe withdrawal. Mm -hmm. 10 or 11 to 20 or 19, whatever it is, is moderate withdrawal. Anything below 10 is considered mild withdrawal and coffee falls within that range. I was just going to ask. And so... Again, let me be very clear. This is with uh, very controlled. Mm-hmm. We know exactly what the makeup is of the alkaloid contents in there, and it's very close to the traditional um, 
usage that we see in in Southeast Asia. So okay. when it's when it's being utilized in that way, in that form, we don't really see much problem okay. there. Uh, and that's in our animals and in the human studies. They were they were talking to individuals that were using it for the purposes of, um, you know, benefit medical benefit, right, not right, for right. abuse and and not for uh, euphoric feelings. Now we have uh, another question that that I think, and, and maybe it's uh, a question and a statement to throw in some of the anecdote here from Comfortable Dash Push eighty forty six from Reddit. Um, so not quite a shove, just a comfortable push. Uh, <laughs> I like it. Has has kratom been found to boost the immune system? I've never been ill while ingesting kratom on a daily basis. Yeah, so you know, there's there's a lot of great anecdotal evidence out there for many ailments. Okay, one of those is is the you know not getting ill. Mm-hmm. How how that's happening? I'm not sure. We know. So does it boost the immune system? I can't tell you if it does or it doesn't. Um, But, again, the anecdotal thing is, hey, yeah, this seems to work. Um, When you speak to people in in Malaysia, they will tell you that not only does it help them stay healthy, um, it does a number of things that may contribute to that. It decreases anxiety. So decreasing anxiety really helps benefit the overall body's yeah, wellness. Absolutely. Right? It'll decrease your pain experience. Mm-hmm. It'll decrease your likelihood of getting ill. Uh, so is it boosting the immune system because it's dropping anxiety levels? Don't know. Mm-hmm. Also seems to be, be very beneficial in controlling blood sugar uh, anecdotally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... Uh, individuals with diabetes seem to be able to control their blood sugar better while they're using Kratom. Uh, no clinical evidence sure, sure. of this at all, um, but something that we're very interested in understanding as well. Kratom um, has many, many compounds within its its realm, so we've tried to study uh, looking at intestinal makeup. So we, t- we hear about probiotics, and we hear about um, the ability for certain certain plants or certain um, uh, bacteria like you would find in yogurt and things like that that can help with gut health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's a huge brain-gut access. We have some great researchers here looking at these things. And is there is there some sort of effect just from Kratom itself traveling through the intestinal system mm-hmm. that's regulating um, bacterial makeup in the gut? Is it normalizing things? Is it helping in that situation of diabetes? Is it helping in other situations that are decreasing inflammation? Um, So there's so many things. And it sounds like sort of this holy grail panacea plant (laughs) and some things that you might read or come across. And and we have to be very, very careful because the last thing in the world you want to do is try and oversell something That does sound like that because then it starts to sound like we're out there peddling snake oil in the old (laughs) days uh, of of back to that wild, wild west again. But what is fantastic is from a research standpoint, there are a lot of avenues of inquiry to really get a better understanding uh, of this. And and that kind of leads me into a question that I got. I got a number of questions from Josue uh, via email. 
Um, and he really was talking uh, in a lot of these questions. We don't have time for all of them. Um, as a matter of fact, we, uh, we don't have time for very much more at all. Uh, it's a great conversation. Um, but he, he seemed to ask a lot about uh, you know, cost-benefit ratio to, to Kratom use. And, and I want to zero in on one of his questions specifically. Uh, do you think that, and this is a projection based on what you know now, and obviously the, the broad disclaimer uh, that I think that you've made pretty clear, but, but just to, to drive the point home is that there's a lot that, that we, the scientific community, don't know. And so some of these, uh, these comments you've been really clear that you've seen evidence from either in an animal model or or uh, in, in some, in looking at even the you know, blood plasma levels and plasma concentration, some is anecdotal evidence, which is much less reliable, much less controlled, um, and then some you just don't know yet. So I, I, just to make sure that everybody's on, on <laughs> the right page here. Um, but maybe just a projection. Uh, uh, do you think that Kratom is more useful for acute pain, for example, in uh, you know, perioperative uh, situations mm. uh, around surgery? Uh, or, or do you think it's more effective for chronic states? Do you think that there's a, a so, differentiation? So based on what we're seeing in, in animals, and, I, and I, I, I can speak a little bit to this in animals, and we're not looking at uh, post-surgical conditions or, or um, situations that would be that type of acute pain. Mm -hmm. We're looking at more blunt acute pain, so either thermal or chemical nociception, uh, so where we actually inject... Uh, acid, acetic acid into an uh, animal, or we put formic acid, which will induce an inflammatory response, or we put these animals uh, into an environment where we dip their tail in 52 degrees centigrade water. They won't keep their tail in there very long, but if they're, f if they're getting analgesic relief, they don't feel it. Mm -hmm. uh, or we put them on a hot plate, which is exactly what it sounds like. Right. And we look at them, their ability to, to lick their paws or start moving around. That, that's a pain indicator. Mm -hmm. um, so in those situations, we don't see great efficacy uh, for, for Kratom. I mean, it works. Mm -hmm. But it works at the level of something like codeine or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug, okay. which is consistent with literature that goes back to the 1970s. Okay. Um, however, when we look at it in a more chronic pain context, we're starting to see really nice efficacy um, comparable in some animal models to things like gabapentin uh, or, or pregabalin, which are used uh, for neuropathic pain treatments um, in, in, in humans. And so uh, some of that work has been presented at meetings. It hasn't been uh, published yet in peer-reviewed literature, but that's, uh, I, I think I can see uh, Kratom much more effective in more chronic pain, mm -hmm. pain okay. states. Okay, and then I want to finish with uh, K.S. Brian, K.S. underscore Brian, Again, from from Reddit, but also from the Kratom Science Podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he cited a study by, and I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, it's either Berthold or Berthold et al., um, 2021. It was published in Drug Metabolism and Disposition. He said, does this show that 7-hydroxymitragynin can only have a powerful opioid effect if it's somehow extracted first and consumed instead of produced solely by the metabolism of metragynum. Yeah, that's, that's our stance right now. Um, that was a paper, Aaron Berthold, who's a, 
uh, graduate student in um, in our in our group, uh, fantastic graduate student. She she conducted an experiment, and we've always wondered what is the consequence of our body's uh, metabolism of mitragyne in the major uh, alkaloid mm-hmm. to the seven hydroxy mitragynin, which we know has high abuse potential, very potent analgesic activity um, com- comparable to prescription opiates. And we've seen that it has uh, potential for addiction behavior on its own. But is it somehow mitigated by the presence of the greater quantity of mitragynin and other alkaloids that are in the plant? Mm. So we never knew how to answer that question. And we knew that products that we would purchase and analyze that had higher amounts of 7-hydroxymitragynin to start with um, would have more analgesic relief in the animals that we studied. But most all the products that we've been testing lately, and maybe we've had some impact on the industry, is that we tell people 7-hydroxy should be below the limits of detection when you're purchasing uh, material and so we're starting to see that in the marketplace we're starting to see those levels come down these are in the higher end <laughs> products right. that are paying for a lot more testing but what we think is going on uh, is that metabolism is of no consequence in terms of the activity but I think it depends on how much you start with in the beginning so if there's some present already in the product that one is ingesting we don't know where the ratio or the what I would call breakpoint is, and it could be highly individual dependent. Mm-hmm. So there's an enzyme, a specific enzyme in the body that's converting mitragynin to 7-hydroxymitragynin. And we know from drug metabolism in general that you can have slow metabolizers, normal metabolizers, rapid metabolizers, and ultra-rapid metabolizers. And so if we're into a situation where we have an ultra-rapid metabolizer that can co- quickly and efficiently convert mitragynin to 7-hydroxymitragynin, that could be a problem from a, a individual genetic standpoint right. of view. And that's a hypothesis we don't know how to test. Thankfully, uh, at the University of Florida, we have an incredible pharmacogenomics program mm. and personalized medicine program that really can go in and interrogate uh, humans' genetic makeup for their metabolism enzymes. And we've talked with that group to say, hey, if we, we can identify what enzymes are doing these things, you know, and we can get to a point of doing clinical trials, and there's a lot of ands, uh-huh. uh, but could we start to look at this from a genetic perspective and say, hey, if you are an ultra-rapid metabolizer with this enzyme and this genetic makeup, you should probably think twice about taking uh, Kratom. So, I mean, what we're, we're really trying to get at it from this holistic uh, perspective and understand it at that level. How exciting to be working on something that, that there are still so many question marks oh, yeah. and so much to be done. Uh, that's I'm envious of you. That's wow. that's fascinating. Thanks. It's, and a, it's, a, it's a hell of a ride. I'll bet. Mean, it's so much fun. I uh, So you were... The first guest that we've you, you made a record you're you're a record holder at least for the podcast and you're the first guest that we've had back on, um, and we scheduled that very quickly before yeah. you left the studio to begin with and and uh, now I'm pretty sure that you are the record holder for the longest episode. Sorry, no, 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 not at all. We try to keep these uh, you know right around fifty 
to 60 minutes and yeah. we've blown well past that and I'm, I'm confident that we could talk for a lot longer um, I'm sure that just about everybody uh, is, is just as intrigued as I am and has been along for the ride this whole time I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation well, thank you me too you don't and realize how much time goes by I know right and well it makes me think that maybe I'm doing my job right as well um, but uh, and, you know for and for those who, who have tuned out well then they won't they won't They'll just move on to the next one. It's their loss. Uh, but I, a most sincere thank you. Uh, now, people won't hear this uh, until the new year. So it's going to sound a little bit strange, but uh, but I wish you a happy holidays. And thank you so much for coming back on. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me here. Uh, you, you can tell there's a lot of passion behind uh, the work that I do and, and real love for, for the people that I get to work with. I get to go out and talk about it. There's an army of individuals that really are the ones that get the credit for, for what we do, and I, I, I can't thank them enough. Um, but I will, I will tell you, I, I obviously love to talk about it and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and, and would be happy to do it another time if, if that uh, deems, deems necessary. Sounds good. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter and Price of Pain podcast, all one word on Instagram.